The Facebook chronic pain group is filled with cancer survivors, victims of severe whiplash from motor vehicle crashes, and lower income patients who have spent their lives toiling in manual labor. These abject souls have in common lives of unending physical pain. At least one in two posts is about narcotics, doctors withholding or tapering too fast, tolerances and detox stories. The drugs rival or supersede their pain in the priorities of daily life. On Facebook, shocking dosages are casually revealed. Five 90 milligram morphine pills every day with at least six Vicodin for breakthrough pain. Surgically installed fentanyl pumps. The brutal abuse their bodies have suffered is undeniable, as is the pain they experience as a result. We must square the treatment of legitimate pain with a more pressing question, however. How can a patient rationally evaluate the benefits of discontinuing long-term opioid treatment if they are barely capable of keeping the drool on their chins to a minimum? Well, you're listening to Astrocytes. Our theme today is physical pain and the lengths we go to escape it. Personally, I've always been indifferent to narcotics as a lifestyle choice. Like alcohol, they just aren't worth the trouble for me. And like alcohol, that disinterest has been one of the few saving graces of a life often beset with good reasons to seek comfort. But when I was struck with intractable, acute, incessant pain in my left arm last year, my neurologist applied himself to helping me. We tried months of acupuncture. I even purchased a small TENS device about the size of an old iPod that connects electrodes to six... I even purchased... <clears throat> but, when I was, but when I was struck with intractable, acute, incessant pain in my left arm last year, my neurologist applied himself to helping me. We tried months of acupuncture. I even purchased a small TENS device about the size of an old iPod, it connects electrodes to sticky conductive pads you place on particularly afflicted parts of the body. Unfortunately, the only thing half an hour twice a day of tingling and flinching did for me was to create a new triple-digit medical bill. At that time, I was a dying leaf covered in aphids. Nothing could sway me from my obsession with the steadily intensifying agony in my arm. After several months of gradually increasing torture, I asked my neurologist for a handful of Percocet to get me through to my new MS medication. He responded as if I'd asked for a letter permitting me to cook meth in my apartment. What angered me most about his response was that he insisted that he was somehow unqualified to prescribe these medicines. Dr. Brittle had completed a residency in neurology, and last month he graduated from a fellowship in neuroimmunology at one of the most highly regarded medical schools in the country. Yet he had already forgotten how to type P-E-R into an epic prescription order? It didn't make sense. Dr. Brittle either thought that his response was some sort of nonviolent communication slash de-escalation way to avoid saying that he is explicitly forbidden by the OHSU Department of Graduate Medical Education from prescribing narcotics of any kind. He could not tell me the obvious, 
that the politics of pain management have swung toward excessive restraint and misplaced moralism, and the proposition that these drugs wouldn't help pain relating to MS is a half-truth at best. While neuroleptics may be the best drugs to manage neuropathic pain, it is not true that the pain caused by nerves whose insulation has become a leukocytes buffet cannot be treated successfully with opioids. For example, the spasms in my legs often cause my calf muscles to tense horribly for sometimes minutes at a time. You can't tell me the severe pain associated with those spasms cannot be helped by drugs designed to block musculoskeletal pain. And it's also an unseemly catch-22 that people who need pain medication the most will approach their physician with an extremely evident desire for those drugs. That is, if you need pain meds, you tend to look like someone who's actively, and thus suspiciously, seeking them. Anyone trying to professionally scam a doctor would probably make an effort to sit up in their chair and cogently answer questions about their so-called pain. Two things I was only half capable of at that time. Now, I would be foolishly naive or deliberately obtuse, not to mention the narcotic addiction emergency in the United States and its heartbreaking consequences. In The New Yorker recently, Margaret Talbot's piece on a West Virginia town bordering on total collapse because of the ubiquity of drug addiction showed an entire community wiped out because of opioids and heroin, fentanyl and carfentanil. Also in Mother Jones, Julia Lurie focuses especially on the child victims of the epidemic and the hopelessly overwhelmed foster care system. Dr. Brittle, then, had abundant reason to fear providing me with the kind of drugs known best for destroying innocent and unsuspecting lives. I persevered, but it was only after months of waiting and a consultation with the pain specialist that I could cop a limited stash of extra-strength Tylenol from my primary care doctor. One of man's best friends, morphine doesn't really help that much for specifically MS-related pain, but it's a lot better than nothing. The junk can definitely push the 0 to 10 pain scale down a respectable 3 points, from an 8 in the early morning to a 5 by brunch. But if my shoulder feels like someone's pounding a railroad tie into it, it's because of MS in its purest form. This is not to say that there's no evidence for using opioids to treat neuropathic pain, but most studies either conclude with only cautious support or surmise that it is only in combination with another treatment that opioids are effective. Furthermore, the newest groupthink on opioid use turns chronic pain patients from sufferers to malingerers and drug addicts. Michel Foucault's description of the clinical arts as shifting in the late 18th century from describing and understanding a human abnormality with the help of the sun's light to a more insular, specific technique. Rather than make use of the sun's common bounty, post-enlightenment physicians strap a headlamp to their pulsing noggins and use the light they provide and control to examine and diagnose their patient. In the mid-90s, the first revolution in medical dogma regarding pain meds took conventional wisdom from extreme restraint in the use of these drugs in non-terminal patients to a more libertine attitude in the go-go decade. It won't surprise you to learn that this change of heart was largely thanks to pharmaceutical company-funded studies and lavish junkets purporting to show oxycodone as no more addictive than big red chewing gum. 
As the inevitable result of giving people with mild sciatica more than 200 milligrams of a heroin analog every day began to play out across the country, once complacent doctors quickly grasped the folly of handing out hard drugs to anyone who asked for them. During this sea change, patients who suffered from debilitating incurable pain were first treated with greater respect and then, without warning, denied their medications because of administrative error. But our national disaster is not an epidemic caused solely by opioids. Purdue pharmaceuticals, sleazy distributors, corrupt pharmacies, ignorant or plain crooked doctors, they initiated and sustained this get-rich-quick scheme. Like the opium wars in 19th century China, Americans were not just plied with chemical restraints, but they had it all but force-fed through a nasogastric tube. As usual, the capitalist system rewards sales and stock performance with absolutely no regard for long-term consequences. And it is not the drug companies paying for thousands of doses of Narcan, or for the EMTs who ferry addicts back and forth to the hospital. Like gun manufacturers in America, pharmaceutical companies are practically impossible to sue over such an epidemic result. The story of the addiction crisis we face today is predated by hundreds of years of legal pharmaceuticals designed to hook customers permanently. Anyone who's seen the Steven Soderbergh show The Nick remembers the tableau of a rock-bottom Dr. Thackeray being tucked sweetly into bed at an Ur rehab clinic. As he drifts off to sleep, a kindly attendant injects him with something to ease his cocaine detoxification. The scene ends with a shot of the new drug on his bedside table, a novel replacement for morphine called heroin. I have tried to imagine the pleasures of narcotics, tried to set up a situation where I would most enjoy a Tylenol 3 or 2, but it's not joy I feel when the drugs kick in, it's a kind of numbness. I may dissociate peacefully or look head-on at a chip in the drywall for a few hours, but there's no need for more. In the month or so when I was recovering from a bout of shingles, I took half a dozen Percocet every day. Then, one morning, I woke up in that punishing winter of 2012, and the thought of 7.5 milligrams of oxycodone wasn't so appealing. I stepped down over a few days, and I didn't have anything resembling an opioid for years afterward. As the dope crisis in America is paradoxically one of libertarian economics, so is the experience of begging for pain relief not one of addiction, per se, but of asking for respect and dignity as an extremely vulnerable person. Those hippie studies that conclude things like acupuncture or short walks in the park are as effective for treating pain as a pale yellow tablet of blessed silence are not off-base, but the experiment's benefit comes from being allowed to live in the world, which is always better for one's pain than feeling isolated and unheard. Another counterproductive habit of some physicians is a focus on evaluating one's progress through quantitative metrics exclusively. While the MRI may not show many changes, my inability to walk can only be attributed to MS. There is value in diagnostic testing, obviously, but some doctors are more comfortable seeing their patients as a collection of numbers to be monitored. The greatest flaw in this increasingly popular style of medicine is that quality of life is usually ignored. By its very nature, this outcome is subjective, but the patient knows what it means to have a life worth living. 
or to have one that is even livable at all. You're not dead. You're still mostly in control of your body's most basic functions, and you only have one small lesion on your latest MRI, so what do you have to complain about? What more do you want from me, the doctor asks. I'm checking all the boxes. I have kept your disease metrics as stable as possible. But look at me, I say. I am in pain every hour of the day. My walking has deteriorated at a precipitous rate, and I am so depressed I can't even move. The only metric that matters is quality of life, yet it is the one most doctors are least inclined to focus on. In the age of sanctified best practices and gleeful shunning of alternative viewpoints in mainstream medicine, the physician's role in making his patient's life livable has drastically diminished. It is as if an accountant squished everything about every patient into an Excel spreadsheet and creatively rearranged it until anything resembling non-productive time was quashed. An unsurprising irony, GOP rhetoric on choosing one's doctor and not becoming a government HMO slave is somehow at odds with the results of their beloved free-for-all medical system. I think that most people would agree that a half-conscious life defined by one's next dose of morphine is no life at all. Yet there is no excuse for denying that opioids work extremely well for some kinds of pain. Rather than pull up the moat's gangway and bolt the doors through analgesia, a more honest approach would focus on harm reduction and preventing addiction. When one is in such a primordial state of pitched vulnerability, the tiniest measures of joy are greeted with frantic gratitude. We lose so much as sick people. It is not merely the indignities required to interact with some doctors, but the accidental betrayals of good friends. The concept of microaggression has gained momentum as a tool for explaining the everyday disrespect and hostility people of color experience. That disabled people can experience these sorts of slights, this prolonged murder, should be obvious to anyone sensitive enough to grasp the general idea of bigotry. When you are degraded for circumstances beyond your control, it is hard to imagine a life where your capabilities would be honored, rather than one in which your deficiencies define you. Moving back west was a regrettable decision, but at the time I really didn't have a choice. Sometimes medical inevitabilities restrict you from joining the family of man. Other times you are perfectly capable of performing at the same level as an able-bodied person, but the limitations of your disease make you an inconvenient subject for your boss. Tell me, how does one respond to a conversation that begins with, your work is impeccable and the strength of your editing is not in doubt, but the work product is the reason for my spending precious hours taking drafts word by word and polishing them to a bright sheen. It is the thing I can do. And what other factors could prevent someone from seeing that? Life is for the living, and I have no life at all out here. I thought I could maintain the professional contacts and intellectual lodestars of my Brooklyn years, but today I learned that proximity to the Metropole is the only thing that matters. Moving back to the city isn't just a way to be closer to all of my wonderful friends, it's the only way I'll ever matter to anyone I respect. Some days I feel like Job, and some days I wallow in the guilt of not being entirely abject. How dare I worry so much?
How dare I curse God? I don't even believe in him. But I will pass through my fear. If I can survive, I will eventually emerge from this noxious miasma. Reborn. Thank you for listening to Astrocytes. I have been and may well remain Andrew Rose. Send us an email at astrocytespod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at astrocytespod. And subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Next week's episode will be recorded live in one of New York's hidden gems, Brooklyn.